0: So today we're going to answer the question: Can Jesus truly satisfy? Can Jesus truly satisfy? So how many of you um, in high school or maybe even college tried to memorize because of an assignment, the beginning to the Canterbury Tales? Anybody have to memorize the first introduction? There's one. Okay, there's a, another one I know my wife did, and um, I tried. It's in, um, it's in old English, and if you've ever tried to read old, like, Canterbury Tales English, you can read it, and it says it's English, but I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> I couldn't do it. But Canterbury Tales is a series of tales when translated into our English, actually has some great tales in it, and so I'll tell you one of them called The Pardoner's the Tale. So there are three um, lawless men who were looking for death, like they were looking for like the Grim Reaper, because they thought they could kill him. So they go searching throughout the land to find death. And they find this old man, and the old man says, death's over there under that tree. And they're like, okay. So they go over to the tree, and they check it out, and they find a quote, bushel of gold, unquote, I'm not sure what a bushel of gold looks like, but it sounds like a lot. So they find a lot of gold, and their minds are emptied from death, and it's filled with greed. And so they're like, okay, let's sleep here tonight, and then in the morning we're going to sneak away with all this gold. So that's the plan. So the youngest says, I'm going to go to town and get us some food and drink because, you know, we're going to be chilling out. Let's go ahead and do that. And so he goes, but his plan is to poison the other guy's So he can get all the gold for himself. So he buys some rat poison, puts it in the wine, and gets back. But the other guys have already been plotting to kill him. And so when he gets back, they kill him, and they celebrate by drinking the wine. (laughs) And so they've all found death, looking for satisfaction. Looking for satisfaction. Jesus is going to make it very clear to us that he truly satisfies, and that there is no other place to find true satisfaction than in him. And he's going to use this idea of thirst to make the point. He's going to use water to make the point. I wish I had a really good story for you about how I was dying of thirst one day and all this and I can't, you know, how great it was to drink that. But usually it's just go cut the grass and then come in and get some water. And that is really satisfying in the moment. But nothing like it is to just be parched of your thirst, right? And just to, but see, think about thirst. What is thirst about? Why are we, why do we thirst? Why did God make us so that when we need water that our body might have a way? Oh, that's it. God gave us a way to know that we needed to drink by making us be able to be thirsty, our bodies are like, I don't know, 75% more wa- than water, a lot of water. If you get dehydrated, it's bad, 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 bad. So you want to keep, you know, lots of fluids in you. But it's not just that he says, this is when you need to drink. But it's like he's saying, it's like God's saying, not only does your body know it needs it, but I'm telling you that what you need to satisfy that thirst exists. Okay. Now I want you to think about it, and Jesus, and I'm going to read this passage again, and it's a metaphor for the thirst of our soul, okay? Because we can't see our soul, it's very intangible, it's really hard to get our brain around, what is the soul? Just the essence of who we are, that which will live forever, the soul. When the soul thirsts for something, craves something, wants something, that means it knows it exists, it's out there somewhere. What would the soul thirst for? Probably something more than a Dr. Pepper. So let's look at John 7 and let's see. Now, we are in John. This is not a mistake. We're not in Matthew this week. Um, hang in there, it'll be okay. I promise you, we'll have more Matthew coming. But I, I, I felt like this was where God wanted us to go today. And Jesus is in, uh, he's in Jerusalem. He's not. He's at a festival, but it's not the same festival we were at last week when we were with Matthew, who was telling us about the Passover festival, which is one of the three major festivals in Israel in those days. The Feast of Passover was that one. This one is the Feast of Tabernacles, and um, the feasts are always have always been confusing to me. But um, what I do know is the Feast of Tabernacles is we're. So the Feast of Passover is to remind them of the exodus out of Egypt, delivered from Pharaoh, let my people go, no, and then all the miracles and plagues. This one is to remember the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, which kind of makes you scratch your head and go, really? That's what you want to have a celebration about? Remembering that you're wandering in the desert for 40 years because you disobeyed and didn't trust God? Apparently, it has some lessons for us too. In fact, before I get to this, um, there are two passages or two verses I want to share with you that tell the story of some things that happened there. Um, Exodus 17.6 tells just a real quick something that happened. Um, Moses is there. He's leading the people. This would be 1,500 years before Jesus, so 3,500 years ago, give or take. 17.6, this is what it says. Moses says, I will stand there before you, sorry, the Lord, I'm going to start in verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, verse 6, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, that means hit it, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, okay? Okay. So, let me now flip to Numbers chapter 20, I know, Old Testament, what? You thought you could get away with just bringing your New Testament, it usually works. Okay, verse 20, chapter 20, verse, all right, I'm going to skip around a little bit, starting in verse 1, in the month, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived in the desert of Zin, Z-I-N. Now, The the first verse I just read out of Exodus, they're in the wilderness, in the desert. Here we are about 40 years later, and not necessarily the same spot, but they're still in the wilderness. And they stayed at Kadesh, where Miriam died and was buried. That's Moses' sister. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord... Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. In other words, there's no buffet here. What is the deal? Why are you bringing us out of slavery? Because they've forgotten what slavery was like. So here's, here's what I'm showing you. I'm showing you two different instances. Oh, and then it says... Um, Uh, So Moses and Aaron goes out from the assembly, I'm in verse 6, and they fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared, and and then verse 9, so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him, 10, he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said, listen, you rebels, okay, I don't imagine he said it that nicely, he is pretty hacked at Israel, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his water. What I didn't tell you is what God said to him in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Then he says this, Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. So God tells him the first time, Exodus 17 Go to the rock, take that staff I gave you, whack the rock, and water's gonna come out. And that's what happened. Streams, rivers of water, so much water that it, that it, uh, 1.5 million people get something to drink and their cattle in the desert. Have you ever poured water at the beach into the sand and watch it disappear like that? You're not gonna get it to puddle unless you saturate that. That's how much water we're talking to. So. And he just says, not just a river, rivers. So I want you to imagine, so in Charleston, we have two rivers that come together to make the Charleston Harbor, the Ashley River and the Cooper River. And the Cooper River is probably the bigger of the two, I don't know, maybe they're about the same, but eh, maybe it's not. They're both pretty good-sized rivers, okay? Imagine both of those rivers, along with a several others, springing up out of the desert floor, like the, the rock cracks and the water starts shooting up real high, and so people start to scatter, and then it just gets bigger and bigger, and then it just starts bubbling over. It reminds me of when, um, when I got to go to Uganda and we did, the, remember we did the, uh, uh, the Vic- Lake Victoria boat ride? And the Lake Victoria, biggest lake in the world and thereby in Uganda, pours in, it is the headwaters of the Nile River. Now, I didn't remember a lot of geography in high school and, and middle school, but I remember this. The Nile River is the longest river in the world. It goes all the way and it flows north all the way to the Mediterranean. The headwaters, okay, fill the Nile and, and, and all that, but, don't, but you would think, with a lake that big, that most of the water would come from the lake. But the tour guide, I don't know if he's right or not, says 80% of the water into the Nile River actually comes from underground. And so when you're in the boat, you're watching this water kind of boil up from beneath at the headwaters of the Nile River. So imagine that in the desert. Moses whacks the rock, water starts coming, people start flying away because they're like, this is not, this is getting to be... And there's all this water. And their thirst is quenched. Okay? That's the imagery I want you to carry forward into John as we look at John chapter 7. Jesus is in this festival, festival of tabernacles, reminding them of the 40 years in the wilderness. And apparently, according to rabbinical writings, I've never quoted rabbinical literature before, okay? So I'm doing it now, and I'm not going to be very specific because I have no idea which ones. But apparently, in Jesus' day they had this daily ritual that involved the Pool of Siloam. And if you remember the Pool of Siloam, that was the one where they would try to get in the water when the water stirred and be healed. It was waters, the waters were considered waters that would heal, and they actually called waters of salvation. And so they would go through all of this, I'm not going to get into it, they would go down, they would take a picture, a priest would take a picture of water, surrounded by all these people, fill it up with the water of salvation and healing, and take it back to the altar, go around the altar like marching around Jericho, hold the picture up, and I can't remember if they dump the water on the altar every day, but I know on the seventh day, which is near the end of the festival, they go around seven times, I'm thinking, this has got to be, you got to be kidding me, and then they, they pour the water in on the altar. And, and apparently this is such a big deal that people like don't ever want to die without having seen that in Jerusalem. I mean, it, it apparently is a big deal. So there's a massive crowd, and they're all straining, and the, pri- the priest even gets a little dramatic as he holds this pitcher up, and there's another priest there with a pitcher of wine, which represents symbolically blood, which I don't think they put this all together when they're doing it necessarily, but and he holds, he pauses, everybody's looking, straining to see the pitcher as he pours water on the altar. It's at that moment that Jesus says these words. So there's a big crowd. They just saw water from the pool of Siloam poured. And then it says in verse 37, John writes, on the last and greatest day of the festival of tabernacles, of the festival, Jesus stood, which is not normal. Rabbis always sat when they taught. He stands up. It says, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Jesus didn't raise his voice very often either. Some translations say he cried out, Let everyone who is thirsty come to me, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers, plural, of living water. Will, will flow from within them. And then John explains a little commentary here. By this he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, however you want to describe him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And that would happen after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, Acts chapter 2 during Pentecost. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus had followers, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. They're following Jesus in their own strength. And, you know, maybe God is giving them glimpses and outpourings of the Spirit, but he doesn't live in them until after the resurrection. That's when the Holy Spirit comes. So when Jesus uses this metaphor about being thirsty and drinking this living water, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's using metaphorical language to describe something we cannot see so that we can get our little brains around it. And he's saying something very important for us. And that is, I satisfy your soul. The things that you and I pursue for satisfaction are usually, no pun intended, a bit shallow. (laughs) But God created us for more. And I don't know why, well, I do know why, as I was preparing this, I thought of of moms and I thought whether you're a good mom or not a good mom, whether you have a good mom or whether or not, I imagine there's some moms, and I just pictured a mom with little kids that are wearing wearing her out. And she's just thinking, what am I doing? They eat, they sleep, they poop, repeat. And I'm just worn out. What am I doing? This does not satisfy. (laughs) And it's really easy to lose sight of the big picture in that moment, isn't it? And Jesus says, satisfaction is more than just you having a great day with your toddlers. Satisfaction is more than getting the promotion and the respect that you want Satisfaction is more than um, going to your 40th class reunion and, and looking better than everybody else. Fill in the blank for whatever it is that you hunger and thirst for. Jesus says, I am more and I satisfy more than you can imagine, and I designed you so that you could receive that and enjoy that forever. Forever. And not only does the world pursue things that don't really satisfy, but we as Christians do the same thing. We settle. We don't act much different sometimes. And Jesus says, let everyone or anyone who is thirsty, any ethnicity, any age, any gender, any perceived gender, anyone who's thirsty, Come. It's an invitation. Remember last week we talked about the wedding invitation and how God just kept, the king kept inviting people because other people would reject the invitation. People are going to reject God's invitation. Maybe you have rejected God's invitation. But he's inviting you now. And I know in scripture Jesus commands us to come, he calls us to come, but there's also this sense of an invitation. It's something that you and I should. do desire, even if we don't understand necessarily what and why. Then he says, um, whoever believes in me. So he connects this drinking, this imagery of drinking this living water with belief, faith, trust, okay? And we often will use this as an, as an illustration. To believe something in your head is to believe that that stool will hold you up. But to trust that stool to hold you up requires you to sit on it, <laughs> Right? Action is required. This is what it means. Faith without works is me standing here believing it can hold me up. But I'm not going to sit on it because it might break. But if I believe it to the extent that I'm willing to sit on this in front of you, even though it might drop me on the floor in front of everybody, it says, I fully believe it will hold me up. And this is not infallible, but he is. And I just think we're not trusting him to satisfy us. We're settling for crumbs. I'll tell you how Jeremiah says it two two thirteen. Jeremiah two thirteen. One of the Old Testament prophets, six seven hundred years before Christ, six hundred years before Christ. Um, he says it this way. Actually, God says it this way. Verse thirteen of chapter two. My people, God is speaking about Israel. Okay, my people have committed two sins they have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water so he, here's so he is like a fountain an everlasting th- fountain of water that is clean, cold, fresh, and never stops moving, and it's just an unlimited supply. That's God in this picture. And the alternative is what Israel was doing. They were ignoring that water, and they were coming over here to the rock, and they were scraping the rock so that they would create these little puddle areas so the water, rainwater would rain into it and create a little puddle of muddy water. And they were, like, preferring that over this fountain. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous. Nobody would choose to do that, would they? And God is saying, Israel, you're doing it. Israel, you have this and you're doing this in the way that you live and the things that you pursue for satisfaction. And I think Jesus would say it to a lot of us too. I think he would look at our lives and the things that are important to us, and he would say, what you're pursuing is the equivalent of a cistern. These cisterns won't even hold the water for very long. And the water that's in there, it's all muddy. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, it's like you're at the beach, and there's sand, and there's the ocean, and you go over across the street and sit in a mud puddle and play in the mud because that's so much better than the beach. And yet, we look at that, and it's so obvious to us, and it's so obvious to God when he watches us. And yet, and so when I think of this, I look at this, and I says, whoever believes in me, okay, so the question we're trying to answer, right, is does Jesus truly satisfy? Now, this is where you can get skeptical on me, okay? You can, some of you can go, well, I've been in church all my life, and I don't feel that satisfaction you're talking about. I can't see it. It doesn't, it does not say church will satisfy. It does not say sitting in rows looking at some dude talk about Jesus is going to satisfy. There's a whole buffet of means of grace in this book and in life experiences that together collectively make it so that you are, a po- so it's possible for you to make room for God to do a great work in your life. But He's still the source. Okay? He is the source of life. It's living water is a picture of life, abundant life and, uh, and the source of life, true life, life that's not just we're going to live this life and then we die and we go back into the dirt. How depressing. This is not all there is. There's so much more that awaits. And, but God has arranged it so that we make the call in this life how we will live the rest of our lives here and in the hereafter. And we're living like that doesn't matter. We're living in the here and now as if this is all that matters. That's why we do this instead of this. We live like this, clenched fists around whatever we can get our hands on, and heaven forbid someone take it away from us, much less us be generous with it. And yet that's exactly what he calls. Because look how he says it. Look how it ends. Scripture: Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So God is the source. That's the Holy Spirit. When you and I trust Christ, he comes in. He pitches his tent, so to speak. He 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 immerses us in the spirit of the living God okay, to immerse, right? That's to plunge underwater, okay? And and it's like God takes our soul and saturates it with him, okay? There's nothing greater you could want, ask for, or receive that would bring more blessing than God himself, okay? And you just have to decide whether you believe that or not. But just know this, your actions and my actions say what we believe about this, and if our pursuits are anything other than him, then we're saying, I'm going to settle for this because I think it's better than what God can give me. Even if God gave you that, this is better. But here's the picture that, you, that most people miss when they see this. So those rivers I was talking about, the Ashley River, the Cooper River, right? All these rivers, this fountain bubbling up water at the head of the Nile River, just a source of unlimited, life-giving water is in God's people. Each one, okay? And and the fact that it's overflowing should tell us a clue about what it's about to really find satisfaction in Jesus. You want to find even more satisfaction than all that God can give you? Give it away. Let it flow off of you into the world. But be careful because water flows downhill It means we go to low places with that water because that's where it's needed most and that's where it's received best, in the lowest places of our dark, unsatisfying world. Are you satisfied? Right now, are you satisfied with your life, the way you're living it, the things you're pursuing? I'm not satisfied with my life because I realize it can be so much more. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. If I have the most precious thing I could have, and that's a relationship by the way, why would I keep it to myself? That's selfish. But to give it away is full of joy. And that's what he calls us to do. But you can't give away something you don't have. So do you have living water? Have you been immersed in the spirit of the living God? And this isn't something that we're not going to like bring a tank out and say, this is full of the Holy Spirit. Let's, you know, baptism is a picture, another metaphor of this idea that we need God. And apart from him, we can do nothing that lasts, nothing that matters, nothing that satisfies us or anyone else. But with him, we find our soul fully satisfied in Him. Think about joy constantly, regardless of your circumstances. Think about the peace of God that surpasses all understanding in a world that feels so unstable. Stability, joy, patience. And I could go down the line of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Because all of this in infinite supply satisfies my thirsty soul. And Jesus just says, come, just come. Are you satisfied? Let's pray. Lord, I don't know where anybody else is. I know I want to find my full satisfaction in receiving and giving living water that comes from you alone. You are the source. And you're Source is, there's no end. It's limitless. And so, Lord, as we think about our very souls, if we think about who we are, we're going to live forever somewhere. The question is, where and how? Lord, I pray that we would rightfully crave to be satisfied. Lord, you tell us, you told us in Matthew 5, 6, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for right relationship with you. For they will be satisfied. It's a promise. Lord, I pray that we would not only crave more of you, but that we would pursue you, that we would recognize there is no other pursuit in life that comes to a close second. I pray that you would encourage us and the word courage is there for a reason to step into that mindset that says I surrender all to you that I might receive everything you have created me for. In Christ's name we pray, amen.